This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome to the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the innovative Simon Belanger. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. We're recording this, as I said, Tuesday, October 10th. So yesterday was Thanksgiving. Did you have some turkey? Yeah, yeah, I did have some turkey, but unfortunately, I was also sick, uh, which I think we got from our daughter, uh, but it was still fun. <laughs> yeah, and my, my voice. Daycare, it's just yeah. ground zero for every sickness uh, at daycare there. How about you? Well, yes, well, yes, to all, all the Canadians, the Thanksgiving. I was talking to my team and they're like, because some of them are overseas. And I'm like, by the way, we have Monday off. And they're like, what? That's <laughs> like, oh, it's Canadian Thanksgiving. They're like, what do you mean? Thanksgiving's in, a, in a, like a month. And I'm like, no, 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 not in Canada. You know what? Canadian Thanksgiving is at the perfect time because it's still like fall golf. It's still like, I mean, it wasn't particularly yeah. nice, but it, it, it's still, you can still get like a glimpse of like a summer day every, every once in a while. Uh, every few years and in november that's just not possible so uh yeah it's no, true i like the way it yeah. is and i like it because i end up usually going to to uh see some family in the u.s uh for u.s thanksgiving that lives not far from the canadian border so i kind of get uh you know both the experience from both sides although i'm sure you experience right. it uh football style right yeah exactly yeah that that is one nice Thing. I get the Thursday night football. Uh, before we begin today's show, I have, I have a question for you. I've been meaning to ask you this. If you are on an escalator, okay, do you walk up the escalator or do you stand? A- assume no luggage. If you're at yeah. the airport, oh yeah, you're, 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 you're standing with your bags and all that crap. You're, it's just you. You're, are, you a, are you a stander or are you a walker up the escalator? I'm a walker. And after going to Taipei about 15 years ago, where people like literally you will get pushed if you don't stand on the right side because people on the are right side. Yeah, people are very like they will walk and they will let you know or basically push you. Since then, I mean, I always stand on the right side if I'm standing for it. But for the most part, I'm always walking up. Yeah. You are a smart man. Hey. Hey, people out there, if you want to stand on the escalator, I get it. You know, having a nice casual <laughs> Sunday at the mall. Get your ass over to the right side. Uh, unbelievable stuff. People standing there on the left side. I'm like that guy who like, I like, like, kind of like, <laughs> hey. <laughs> they they hey, feel by you the way. behind them. Yeah, yeah, like- yeah, yeah. Like a little jab to the back. Hey, get over. What are you doing standing there? Uh, okay, well, I'm glad we're on the same page. Uh, see what we got uh, news and earnings today on the show. Uh, lots of stuff coming out. Lots of uh, global news. We'll touch on very briefly in, in a bit here. But big Canadian news here. Uh, BlackBerry is set to split into two different public companies in an effort to revive shareholder interest. I'm going to get into 
the the nuances of it, <laughs> what, what their plan is, what their plan or lack of thereof plan is. What is your initial kind of thought? I don't know if you saw this news piece or is this. I mean, I heard about it. I haven't like really read what it was about, what they're looking to split. Are they kind of splitting their IOT with like something? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't know from a bird's eye view, just because we talked about Blackberry before. I do wonder how John Chen still has a job there right yeah i like i really it's baffling like i understand like he had a tough turnaround to do and he did like you know like props to him he did shift the business away from smartphones uh but at the same time i mean uh, the business is just a shell of itself and i think I, I honestly think they should look for someone to try to either you sell the business altogether or you find someone to bring the business in a new direction and actually get some growth. And that's been the, my biggest issue with BlackBerry is they have not been growing. It's like every time we look at it, there's like another yeah. excuse. There's always an excuse as to why or they tried to highlight was was kind of positive, but they're still not growing and they sold off so many patents. I don't even know how many they have left at this point. Remember you and I were discussing the business maybe two years ago and a lot of listeners were writing into the show saying, can you review BlackBerry? It's it's so undervalued. It's trading at, you know, a single digit PE or, you know, this and that, whatever multiple or whatever way you want to spin it, the business is so cheap. And you and I were saying, no, this business is expensive. It's actually overvalued. Uh, and, and since then, since that episode, I looked at it, the stock's down 68% since then. So uh, ch- check, please. You can't just like put one valuation multiple backward looking and say it's cheap. If the business is structurally in decline, it's not only not growing, uh, in aggregate, it's 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 been in decline on the top line. And so this is what they're trying to do. Over the years, what was the smartphone darling? The business has had to reinvent itself. Now, I've always thought this transition has been of a bit of a dumpster fire. I'm not exactly sure why John Chen has such a long leash here, as you just hinted to. Uh, to, to use like a baseball reference, when, the, when a pitcher's on a short leash... <laughs> You know, you get, you get a pitcher who's on a long leash because Cy Young winner, you know? Are, are you referencing sem- recent Toronto Blue Jays managerial <laughs> decisions? Am, yeah, okay. I am. Yeah. You bet I am. Uh, you know, some, some guys get a long leash, some guys get a short leash. Why does John Chen have a five-time Cy Young Hall of Fame leash here? Uh, it has not been a good tenure. And, and to be fair, he was given the keys to a kind of hodgepodge of businesses they acquired when they actually had a lot of cash coming in the door. That cash stopped coming in the door from the smartphone business. And it's like, okay, uh, take these assets and you figure it out. Now, driven by what looks mostly like active investor pressure, BlackBerry is set to split it into two separate businesses. Today, the business operates as three segments. One, cyber cybersecurity. Two, Internet of Things or IoT, which is really just a automotive software play for the most part, connected vehicle software. So cybersecurity and IoT. And the third, which is licensing of patents, which they've mostly just sold off recently to an Irish company. So that leaves us now forward looking into cybersecurity and IoT. The cybersecurity business is, in fact, not growing and shrinking and has had 
It's, it's the largest part of the business by about two times the IoT segment. And it's been the most disappointing of the turnaround because it hasn't played out the way it, it, they, they wanted it to. Their niche of device management is, is very like 10 years ago in terms of being very hot. And employee companies are just buying their employees iPhones now. And Microsoft really kind of owns this space in terms of uh, ecosystem of device management between laptops and work phones and the suite of tools that they can use for these large companies. That segment did 418 million revenue last year, but it's declining. The IoT business that they want to spin off and say, hey, look at this really great asset, uh, investors. It did 206 million in revenue last year. And so it's half the size, but it's actually growing and showing promise. They say that it, they expect it to grow 20% year over year for you know the next few years to come. So they want to split it out and have the market really see the appeal of this business on its own. The game, uh, the business is in the game of connected cars. And although I don't really understand this tech all that well, it's probably an important technology for autonomous vehicles and operating systems car, which uh, operating the system of a car, which has really just become a giant computer on wheels over the past you know 15 years. It's a fascinating story because it was actually acquired by Ottawa-based company QNX. <laughs> That's a good, great Scrabble. Uh, yeah, they're QNX. QN- yeah, yeah, I've heard <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah, they're like you've yeah, heard of them yeah. being in Ottawa. The the founders like I have to pick three letters. Let's pick the highest combination of Scrabble ever. They acquired uh, this business actually for the intentions of their smartphone business. It turns out this works really well for the automotive industry. The issue here is that I actually still don't see this very compelling of a growth story. Q1 and Q2 of this year showed no growth year over year. Actually, a little bit slightly, a few percentage points negative. And if you look up to now seven, uh, six, seven quarters, they've shown no sequential growth in their, in their top line. So it's not like investors have to go out of their way to get a look through of this business. You know, it's not like these large tech, you know, mega tech companies who are like, let's split out AWS or let's split out YouTube and Google cloud and the ads business. It's not like there's some huge value unlock. Like people can have complete look through into IOT and it's really not that compelling. This to me is BlackBerry looking for some bright spot of financial engineering uh, in what is a struggling once darling of a tech company trying to find themselves. The problem is they've been trying to find themselves for a long time now. So yeah. this, is, I mean, this is what's happening with BlackBerry. Yeah, you do wonder. I'm like, obviously, I'm sure there's some smart people on the board there. Um, I do wonder if they haven't looked at just selling off the business and potential parts as well. Um, maybe they have, and there's just no, not much demand, and they just see this as uh, splitting it to two publicly listed companies as the best outcome for shareholders. Um, I certainly hope so for shareholders because it's not been easy, um, especially you know Fairfax Financial bet pretty big on. Them, I think they own about a bit less than twenty percent. Last time I checked, with all the um, debentures that can be converted into stock, um, so I think they're fully diluted uh, share ownership. I think it's between fifty and twenty percent. So 
I'm assuming Prem Watsa has definitely had some say in this. Uh, maybe it's a way for them to try and get some value on their investment because obviously it's probably not been a great investment for them. And that, that's been a while since I think he was a big backer of John Shen too. I, I mean, he must have been. You'd have to someone be. Yeah. Is, someone yeah. is a big fan of John Shen. Yeah. I don't know who, but someone. No, yeah, I mean, there's not much. It's really too bad because it was, you know, it was really darling of Canadian tech. Um, and for our younger listeners, like Blackberries are what came before the iPhone. That's pretty much it. it's the or it's <laughs> yeah. the OG smartphone, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. For for those who are unfamiliar, can I make a bold prediction? Go for it. It's a bit early, but you know, just a couple months away from the year end. Yeah, Waterloo based open text buys carves out some of these assets in the next three years they have many assets that are are very similar to these kinds of niche cybersecurity kind of slow growth um yeah they're they're kind of value investors in buying a lot of this like legacy tech and uh and they usually do deals between 500 mil and 2 billion range so this is kind of right in the sweet spot. I think BlackBerry's here two billion CAD and market cap. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it could be some nice carve out maybe of the cybersecurity business. So that's my bold prediction right here. So they're well, they're both Waterloo based. So it'd be <laughs> easy transition for yeah. the employees. That is my bold prediction that uh, Open Text carves this cybersecurity business out, or even the IoT business out, in the next three ish years. I like it. Mark it down. Keep it Canadian. Stamp it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stamp it go. here. October 10th. Calling it. Okay. Well, we're going to shift gears here with something completely different. Well, I guess another kind of struggling business, but um, not in the same sector. So I think we, we've we talked about Laurentian Bank quite a, like a, you know, a decent amount Um Unfortunately, not for great reasons. A um, couple weeks ago, they announced that they would get a new CEO and chair of the board. Um, they trade under ticker LB. Uh, .to, so on the Toronto Stock Exchange, for those not familiar, it's a regional bank mostly located in Quebec. Um, it said a couple weeks ago it was replacing its CEO on a Monday, R- Rania uh, Llewellyn. I'm hopefully not butchering the name too badly here. And that she was leaving the organization immediately. Now, she had been CEO for at the bank for three years. She has been replaced by Eric Provo. He will be also a member of the board of director. He's been at the bank for more than 10 years. Laurentian also announced that the chair of the board of director, Michael Mueller, had also resigned. He would be replaced by Michael Boychuk. And the change comes after Laurentian banged a week before they experienced an online platform outage for five days. And it's also a couple weeks after the strategic review that they had initiated. A lot of people were saying they were probably looking to get some bids, potentially from other Canadian banks. And really, there's no not much that came out of the strategic review. So essentially, the strategic review, the conclusion is that they would not be selling the bank and would accelerate their path to efficiency and simplification going forward. What was interesting is that 
as part of the strategic review, Eric Provost, who's now the new CEO, was given more responsibility. So just a couple weeks before the announcement of the CEO's change. Um, so it's really interesting how that kind of happened. I'm not sure if they were already looking to place him at the helm and uh, just looking maybe for the right time or maybe to groom him. Uh, it could have been a situation where he was being groomed to become the CEO, taking on more responsibility. But then the outage happens and a five-day outage for a bank where people rely so much on online banking. Uh, it's not a good look. I mean, obviously, I that's kind of to be expected that the CEO would leave. Uh, before I continue, any, any comments here? I find that like, you know, five day outage. Uh, I personally use a few Canadian banks between my business and my personal. I find that they also have frequent outages and it baffles my mind. Oh yeah. <laughs> these large, we've we've had these some heated banks. exchanges. Well, not between us, but uh, you venting to me about some. Uh, yeah. Some, well, some the banks. two of us have had quite We've had, I've had quite the runaround with, uh, as, a, as a customer with banks in Canada lately. And I, I literally, so I, I was meeting with the EQ Bank uh, business head division in, in Montreal last week. And I was like to them, you guys can't get launch this up to scale fast enough. Like, take all my money. Like, you guys are the only ones that actually provide a service I like. Uh, it's, it's, it's really sad. So I want to say I'm surprised by a five-day outage from Laurentian, but like, Every, they all have their issues. Well, and like kind of enhancing their di digital experience was actually a big part of their five-year turn. I think it was a three or five-year plan. I can't remember, but their their big turnaround plan. So having that five-day outage, it's really not good. You're a small regional bank. There's a few in Canada. Another one that I'll compare them to is Canadian Western Bank. Uh, I think they're kind of similar in sizes and the fact that they're quite very regional. But you're already a bit behind being a regional bank with traditional branches because they do have those at Laurentian Bank and you have something like that, um, it's really not a good look. You're not a bit like a behemoth and a too big to fail like some of the larger banks in Canada. Um, so I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think that was probably her undoing. Unfortunately, it was probably out of her control, but the fact that it happened on her watch um, and that the head of the board actually resigned as well clearly shows that, um, you know, at least I'll give it to them, they took ownership for what happened. Now, I think Laurentian Bank, the downfall, for those not aware, really started back in 2017 uh, when they uncovered that they had underwrote 89 million worth of mortgages that had documentation issues and misrepresentations. And since then, uh, since the beginning of 2017, Laurentian Bank has been just a terrible, terrible investment. And I kind of compared it to a few other Canadian banks just to show people a bit how, you know, the differences in returns and you know some banks have performed quite well and I included in there not just the big six but also like I referenced to Canadian Western Bank because it is a regional bank and I think it'd be a bit unfair to compare Laurentian to like Royal Bank for example so out of the big six, and I added um, Canadian Western Bank just to compare here, Laurentian Bank first is down 30% in uh, since the beginning of 2017, and that's total return, so it does include dividends. National Bank is up 109%, Royal Bank up 60%, TD 56%, BMO 49%, CIBC 29%. 
Canadian Western Bank, 28%, and Bank of Nova Scotia, 9%. And I'll actually highlight CIBC and Bank of Nova Scotia here because they've had issues of their own, um, you know, for kind of obvious reason. Uh, CIBC, the mortgage side, Bank of Nova Scotia, there has been some mortgage issues, but also um, their expansion into Latin America, I think, is causing them some problems as well. And they still outperform Laurentian Bank massively. So I think here it's just a good reminder for people in terms of investing just because there's a high dividend or a potential value play because clearly Laurentian Bank could have seen been seen as that uh, back in 2017 when they had those issues with the mortgages but I think you know it's a really good exhibit for people and just to remind themselves that okay it's fine to invest in a company that's a value play but make sure you do your due diligence and really understand what you're investing in because um, you can really get burned if you don't have the right call here. I will also add EQB during that time, 150% total return. Yeah, I kind of looked at more traditional (laughs) banks just to be fair because they all have branches, but I thought about adding EQ Bank, yeah. I love how you can do total return on Stratosphere with the price chart because with these dividend players, like, you don't get a complete picture. Like say you get something yielding 6% and you don't include that. Like, uh, it doesn't really make sense. The reason that I am, I would say more bearish on Canadian banks than, than most, uh, and, and not because I think that they're domed or whatever, you know, headline that, that people are throwing around these days. It's just, I legitimately don't think that they offer good products to their customers anymore. Uh, with more and more fintechs emerging that are, like I'm in, I'm in the weeds on this stuff because I'm trying to save money for my business and using the most products and, and have to do a lot of international business and move money to many different countries. They literally just offer terrible products and I've tried a bunch of them for for many for for people like me. And that's why if you turn into this is coming out Thursday, if you tune into next Monday's release, we're doing stocks on our watch list and I have two international payments companies and fintechs that I, I that I'm using and I, I think that they're going it, it's going to be tougher for these Canadian banks in the future to win people like me when I can use these international fintechs that are domiciled outside of Canada that have entire Canadian divisions that are going like eating up a lot of volume and, and deposits and, and, and business for, for Canadians. So I, I, I'm bearish on it for more reasons than just the macro picture. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also even from a crypto standpoint, right? That's why a lot of businesses do like to use stable coins and US dollars or even sometimes using Bitcoin for those international payments because it's so painful with the traditional financial institution. But I'm looking forward at uh, hearing the ones you're going to talk about in terms of fintech. But it does show um, there's a lot of friction, a lot of pain points, and it's not speedy. And I mean, even for the podcast, we have a bank account with one of the big banks and I, I don't want to throw them under the bus although I, I kind of want to <laughs> at the same time but it's I mean it should be simple and sometimes it's my god like literally you need like half a day to go in person to do something that you should be able to do online and you know we're busy or, guys or wait yeah. on the phone for yeah for two hours and, and um there's obvi- there's obviously a higher than normal call volume. Yeah, always. No matter when. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's 3 a.m. There's a higher than normal call volume. But yeah, that's the- it on Laurentian Bank. 
And now, um, so there were some employment numbers that came out for Canada and the U.S. Um, not something we go over that frequently, but it is a bit slow in terms of earnings, and that came out. So I figured um, it'd be a good thing to talk about it because it does have an impact on uh, essentially where the economy could be going, interest rates as well. These are key numbers that the Bank of Canada, but also the Fed, will look at. So U.S. and Canada job, job reports in the U.S. expectations were 170,000 came. In at 336,000. So I think, you know, we can call it uh, pretty much a clean double there. Uh, so surpass expectations. But I, I will mention this, and I know you know this, but I think it's important for people to know not to get too caught up with the headlines. Because especially right now, and I'll point out some things here where the headlines almost is useless. It's that's to the point of what it is. I liked your tweet on this. Yeah. So and I mean, if people want to follow me, uh, they'll see that sometimes I'll kind of tweet on the stuff that I'm working on for the podcast. It's kind of a little preview of what I'll be talking about. But at Fiat underscore iceberg. Yeah. <laughs> Never miss a good handoff. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, my bad. Uh, but um, the first thing I'll just touch quickly on the US numbers, because obviously that affects um, that probably has a larger impact because that's well, a big thing that the Fed will look at. And there are a few things that caught my attention beyond the headline numbers. Um, they do some extensive reports. I think it's the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the U.S., uh, much more extensive than Stats Canada. Not to say that Stats Canada is not good. I'm just saying they put a lot of data out in the U.S., and um, I didn't go through the whole thing, but there's a couple things that caught my attention, and I'll go over one quickly here. So one of them was the amount of people who had full-time jobs and took on a second secondary part-time job. So that figure actually increased 10% when compared to last year, so September of last year, which is pretty significant here. And I think the exact numbers, uh, just going on top of my head, it's like uh, it's closing in on 5 million Americans that are, you know, they have a primary full-time job and a part-time job. So it doesn't take a, you know, a math PhD to figure out that, chances are people have that second job because they needed to make ends meet. And that's something you have to keep an eye on. And it just goes to show that beyond the headline number, that may look good. Um, there are definitely some worrying signs. And there's a couple other things that I do encourage people to, if they like this kind of stuff, like to dive into the data, look at the latest report and the different areas, and you'll get a much more nuanced picture than the headline number. But if we switch back here to Canada, Canada added 64,000 jobs when the expectations were 25,000. Now, in both countries, the unemployment rate remained unchanged. So I think that's important, although it's just, you know, something to keep an eye on. On the surface, like I said, it looks good, but for Canada, when you start looking at the data, it's really not good. I, I would even go as far to say it's actually quite bad um, when you look at the number because the working age population increased by 82,000. So that means there's actually, you know, close to 20,000 jobs that were not created to equal that working age population. And we know that immigration has increased substantially. Not all immigration is working age population, but that 82,000, it just means that there's you know, there's a gap there. So the 64 is actually not that great when you compare it to that. And 48,000 out of the 64,000 jobs were part-time jobs, something, you know, 
something else here and you have to assume that a lot of these people probably wanted full-time jobs but had to settle for part-time jobs or even maybe they had to take on a second job like the data I talked about in the US and since the beginning of the year there's been 1.9% growth in part-time work versus 1% in full-time work so already you're kind of seeing that shift and the last thing I'll say here is 57% of the job were public sector so government job 41% were self-employed and 2% was private sector so for me the most worrying here is the private sector at 2% which I think we can probably agree Braden like that's flat let's be honest here it was literally like a thousand that's that's what was created. Yeah. Um, so and that's month over month, right? So I think it's flat, and it's clearly showing signs, in my view, that um, the economy is definitely slowing. I mean, it's not the only point of data. We've been getting more and more data that the economy is slowing, and it's just something to keep in mind because you know when you're looking at different kind of businesses, some may be impacted more by a slower economy than others. And I think that's just important to understand. I know every single company puts it in their disclaimer, risk and factor, but the reality is some some businesses will be more resilient than others. Um, so just understanding that when there are some potential downturns coming ahead or potentially already happening right now, um, I think it's just good to know. I think it's very concerning how much the Canadian government is adding public sector jobs to boost the job numbers. This is not creating any real economic growth. Uh, it doesn't contribute to uh, you know <laughs> our ability to grow as a country and do international business, and it increases the government spend and ultimately the the cost of government and, and, and taxes implication required from individuals and the private sector. And so be very wary, especially around this time in the political election cycle when it gets very salesy. You know, it gets very, look how many jobs we added. Well, uh, 57% of them were government jobs you added. Uh, and so you got to look under the surface. This is a great overview, uh, Simone, of why looking at a headline number is uh, leads you astray uh, into, oh, oh, wow, beat expectations. Okay, well, only 2% of them were public sector. Uh, pri- that is private. not a good... Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Only 2% of them were private sector. My apologies. And 41% of them were self-employed. Which Maybe is because they got laid off. Huh? Yeah, which is very <laughs> nuanced, self-employed, right? Because if anyone's, I'm sure there's a lot of self-employed people and, you know, you have your business. Um, we have the podcast as well. Um, and I've known people that are self-employed and, you know, some people do really well self-employed and some people really struggle. So it's, you know, there's both sides of the spectrum. Like you said, it could have been people that don't have any choice and had to start their own business because they got let go. They got laid off. So I think self-employed is can mean a lot of different things. And it's not as guaranteed as full-time employment if uh, you have like a permanent job from a business, for example, or I guess even the government to some extent. But then you can kind of go into the pro productivity debate yeah you need to grow high quality private sector jobs to maintain or grow a strong middle class uh that is my opinion all right let's move on to uh so i had notes here written for costco 
and you mentioned you're like oh by the way uh we we covered this while you were gone last week and so you guys touched on the the membership hike you know the quote from the cfo was matter of when not if and so i'm gonna i'm gonna skip all of that uh, because i had in the bottom of my update here just looking at costco's dividends uh per share over time. And if you go on stratosphere.io, this is a very, this is a free feature. You can look up the 30 years of dividend history by share. And so I was looking at these and well, yes, the growth is, is wonderful. I mean, it's been a, it's been a 10 X since 2004 on the dividend per share payout, but this is a, a masterclass in the dividend policy. It is a policy I so love why? One, because they grow it, uh, of course, as the business <laughs> business grows. Um, but this is how I, I don't invest in just dividend players or invest in companies that don't pay dividends. I don't care. I care about great capital allocation. And sometimes a dividend is part of that. I look at Costco as a masterclass in how to run a dividend policy. One, they maintain that they have enough capital to grow the business, which is a very low payout ratio. So it's very safe and conservative. And then every once in a while, they take a bunch of excess cash on their balance sheet and pay it out as a special dividend. So today they pay a dollar and two cents per share. They paid 50 cents just in 2017. So it's, it's doubled since 2017 on the dividend payout. And along the way in 2017, a $7 per share payout. They had a $10 a share payout in 2020. So every few years, they take a look at their balance sheet. They take a look of their CapEx plans for opening new stores. And they look at if they can move a bunch of cash to shareholders via special dividend. Instead of saying, Simone, we're now going to commit to a $2 a share dividend, per share each quarter, we're going to slowly increase it very, uh, very steady. Um, we're going to reward shareholders with dividend growth, but we're also going to, when necessary, or when we can, issue this nice special dividend to reward shareholders. This is a dividend policy I think more companies should adopt. This is what I would do if I was a public company CEO that issued a dividend. I think this is great. I want more companies. I want more of my companies to look at Costco as the gold standard of just because we're feeling good and cash rich now. Yeah, we can raise the dividend 10%. But let's not now commit to this huge dividend payout and rather maybe a special dividend every few years to reward shareholders. I love this and I, want, I, I think more companies should do it. Yeah, I think it's a great strategy because you also like you don't set expectations or anything like that with people thinking exactly. that, oh, you know, they're going to increase the dividend, it's going to stay high, and the management kind of gets stuck in this kind of vicious cycle that we've seen they're so many times. to the dividend, some of these companies. Yeah, exactly. And I was kind of looking, and they must have a payout ratio target. I don't know if they um, they actually explicitly I'll do it, it up. but um, it definitely, I'll show people here, it's uh, very, it's within a range of about 26 to 30 percent. So since uh, 2014, it's been pretty much uh, within that range. So 
they must have some yeah, when you're sharing your screen there here's a little stratosphere tip press the on the right side you see that data that little tag on the right yeah yeah press show data labels okay and it will uh it will show up on there for you oh yeah you okay down Pro to tip. the bottom right yeah. personalized customer <laughs> yeah, service right. from stratosphere <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's perfect. I mean, no, that's why. I mean, my my ballparking was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, your ballparking was good, but yeah, no, the data no. labels is great. Yeah, so I mean, it essentially that it's like kind of a variance about five percent. Um, so it kind of makes me believe that they have uh, kind of a bracket here where you know they want to stay within that, and then if they get quite low, they might do a special dividend to kind of get it up a little more but i mean to me 30 percent. we're looking at earnings here um you know not going more than that i think gives them ample flexibility so i i actually i'm like you yeah, i really like that because i've been pretty critical on certain businesses that should cut the dividend to shore up the business for you know some short term short term pain maybe but longer term uh beneficial for the business and uh yeah and costco is not one of them yeah, they maintain that like like yeah, twenty five ish percent payout ratio. It gives them so much flexibility. You mentioned the optionality, and then it grows as earnings grow because the, you know payout ratio is dividend per share uh, paid divided by earnings per share, and so if earnings per share keeps growing like it has, and they maintain the the payout ratio, then that means that. As a result, that dividend per share continues to rise. Uh, this is a this is a masterclass on capital allocation. I think that uh, this is the gold standard. Thank you for listening to the show, folks. We really appreciate you tuning in. Uh, we got lots of good content coming down the pipeline. Uh, we are here Mondays and Thursdays. If you want to use Stratosphere, we're, just, I mean, we're showing lots of stuff on the screen here for Join TCI subscribers at jointci.com. And those are all screenshots. We're talking about total return. We're talking about the payout ratio. We're visualizing it with these data labels. That is on stratosphere.io. You can get 15% off with code TCI on checkout. You know, 15% off a paid plan. But like I was talking about with that dividend history, they get 30 years for free. So you can go ahead and check that out, stratosphere.io. It is the best financial data terminal on the internet. I, I strongly believe that. So go check that out. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.